You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Hey there, Monster Talkers. Weird times, eh? Well, this is just a quick note to say that I'm foregoing outside commercials for this episode. I know a lot of you are being challenged economically right now, as are we. Hopefully, we'll all get through this crisis and this strange historic period by being the best we can and focusing on our shared humanity. So hang in there. Monster Talk gets a little bit of money from the advertising we do. For example, if you want to help the show at no cost, make sure you download the recent promo we did for Life's Little Mysteries. Those downloads affect how much we get paid for running those ads, even if you don't actually try out the excellent show the ad's promoting. And we make a little bit on the store now and then when you buy a t-shirt or a cup or whatever, and we appreciate that as well. Plus, it was a delightful surprise to see on one of our recent video calls at my day job, one of my coworkers had bought and was wearing a Monster Talk shirt, and that was really nifty. We did follow Patreon's advice, and we raised the minimum patron level to $2 a month. If you're pledging at the $1 level, you don't lose that access. You're fine. But if you join Patreon today at patreon.com forward slash monster talk, you'll find that $2 a month is the minimum support level. I'd like to think we're worth that, but we're also trying to do a little extra during this crisis. And doing video chats, we're calling Monster Talk Live. Karen's been the driving force behind that, and I really appreciate the work she's put into getting the guests and helping get things set up. If you're a patron you'll get an email with the time and location of those live events ahead of time. And you can also find that info by joining the Monster Talk Facebook group. Let me cut to the chase. This is where I'm going to ask, if you are able, please consider supporting us on Patreon at any level, because that's helping us get through this crisis. Only about 1% of listeners to podcasts typically support them. And we'd really love to get that number to about 3%. To be blunt, if everyone who listened to the show supported us at the minimum patron level, Karen and I could both quit our jobs in podcast and write full time. Now, that's a pipe dream right now. Right now, we just want to make ends meet during this crisis, as I'm sure you do too. So if you can help support us, we especially need it right now. I'm going to put away my little tin cup, though, 
and let's get on to the monster dog. Here now a story about a man named Theophilus Broom, recorded in The History and Antiquities of the County of Somerset by John Collinson in 1791. There is a tradition in this parish that the person here interred requested that his head might be taken off before his burial and be preserved at the farmhouse near the church, where a head, chop fallen enough, is still shown which the tenants of the house have often endeavored to commit to the bowels of the earth, but have been as often deterred by the horrid noises, portentive of sad displeasure. And about twenty years since, which was perhaps the last attempt, the sexton, in digging the place for the skull's repository, broke his spade into two pieces and uttered a solemn asseveration never more to attempt an act so evidently repugnant to the quiet of Broom's head. Whether John Collinson intended the pun in choosing the word asseveration in this context is not known. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Today, Karen and I are going to be discussing screaming skulls. There are many examples of this in English folklore, and often that same lore is tethered to reality by the presence of actual skulls within manor houses. We don't know particularly why screaming skulls surged in popularity in the late 1800s, but they did. They are not an invention of the Victorians, though. The legends do go back a ways. Karen dug up a version of the legend that dated back to 1791. Bettiscombe Manor's version is supposed to date back to the 1600s, but I couldn't find anything to confirm that date. Whatever the nucleus of this story, by the late 1800s, it seemed that multiple English manor houses had rowdy skulls within their walls. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And yes, we will be discussing the movie, The Screaming Skull, and multiple short stories on this topic, including the new one by Karen herself. Check our show notes. There is a lot of interesting reading to be found there. Monster Dog. So we've got two episodes kind of with this common theme of these are historical cases, but you have this nice modern tie-in in that you've written some current fiction using these as sort of a basis. I have, yes. I, I think maybe it would be good to start off by uh, talking a little bit about how you and I both came to find out about these legends, because I think we did that independently. Yes. Uh, I know you were talking about it yourself as a, a story that I think you were going to work on for Monster Talk for Christmas last year. You were going to read the the story of the Bittescombe Manor, Screaming Skull. So what we're talking about, I guess we should just go ahead and, and we, say that. Yeah. We should start with that. So... <laughs> We're going to be talking about screaming skulls, not crystal skulls. 
That's right. That uh, although oh, I missed a real opportunity. I could have been having screen. Uh, I could have had Crystal Skull vodka to go with this, uh, but I went with uh, te- tequila. Done it well. Um, yeah, I, I heard about this story. I think uh, it was when I was very young. It was in one of those usborn or usborn books, however you want to pronounce that. Uh, that came out of the 1970s, The World of the Unknown. And so that was just mentioned on one page, a story of the Screaming Skulls. And uh, so I'd never heard of it up until that point. But then independently, you'd heard about the stories too. Right. I I had heard about it um, from the short story, although it's not as short as one might like, uh, by Francis Marion Crawford. Um, Mm -hmm. and And that dates back to about the... Turn of the 1908. Yeah, 1908. Um, it was fun because when, when we were preparing for this episode, I was doing a bunch of research, and there was an interesting mix of the historical legends and then lots and lots of reviews of horror story collections involving uh, the Screaming Skull. In fact, I have a, right. a, a collection uh, by my bed that mm-hmm. is the Screaming Skull and others, and it's got. Um, it's got this story and then lots of others. And the thing about the Screaming Skull, the fictional version, uh, at least the the Francis Marion Crawford version, is mm-hmm. I get you know what? Let me give you a brief synopsis. In fact, uh, sure. so, I know a lot of people who listen to the show also listen to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and they've long since exhausted all of Lovecraft stuff and have moved on into other weird tales. And this is one <laughs> of the ones they've covered there. But okay. uh, he, the story is about. An old sailor who has a friend over, uh, a companion, and he's explaining this, this story about how that he has this this skull in his house that he keeps in a hat box in his in his bedroom closet, okay. and uh, and as he's telling the story to his companion, he keeps telling his look, I can't drink, but you you drink up, and he's giving the guy rum, and he's telling him how that <laughs> you know the the skull seems to be very vengeful and and it comes out as the story goes along that there's a murder involved and that the skull is the skull of a murder victim and uh-huh. and and he hints that he's not entirely innocent in relationship to the murder i don't want to spoil it but mm-hmm. i would say that his efforts to get rid of the skull i don't think they're intended to be comical i think they're intended to be horrific yeah. um right. But, the, but they're unsuccessful. <laughs> well, here, what what gets me is I can't help but think of the the, the Evil Dead Two, uh, which introduced <laughs> the world to this this concept of splat stick, where you have com you combine comic horror uh, or is horror plus like physical comedy of the Three Stooges variety, and mm-hmm. how perfect it would be to have the Screaming Skull as as a as a movie. Uh, where you've got someone like Bruce Campbell who keeps trying to get rid of the skull, but it keeps flying back and attacking him and returning and cackling and doing all the sort of things. Right. That, everything that it does in the story only ramped up to 11, right? I, I think mm-hmm. it would be better. Uh, it, but but it is an interesting story. It, it was well-received. It's considered a classic by many, a snoozer by others. Um, I was hmm. going to try to read it, and uh, I ended up going with a different route for this Christmas. I, I'm going to try again for next Christmas. But I, I really enjoyed our Christmas episode this year, which was the Nightwire. And uh, if you if people skip that, they should check it out. I, I actually put a lot of effort in, in the Nightwire. The like, for example, and nobody's going to notice this, but the the um, I did the uh, sort of teletype sounds, and then I did the. Uh, Morse code sounds, but those aren't random Morse code. Uh, as I'm like that Nightwire story has like messages being sent in Morse code, 
And I actually <laughs> took those messages from the story and transcribed them into Morse code for the audio. So there was a lot more oh. effort in that than I think people probably noticed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I think it was just interesting that I was writing a short story about this topic and around the same time that you were thinking about yes. it too. Yeah. It was a, we had a very funny exchange. We're like, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about the fictional, the fictional one. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's that, that I think that's a really key point too. It just seems like a, a lot of these stories until quite recently were an oral tradition. And uh, only only of late have really been written down, and that there are lots of different versions, uh, but they all have a series of features or hallmarks which are common to to all of the stories. And uh, I guess we should talk a little bit more about the the origins of the stories too, because a lot of people believe that they're linked to some kind of Celtic tradition, uh, in which there's a lot of mythology about the powers of or the supposed powers of the human head and a lot of sculptures of human heads and, and various beliefs about the, the about heads. Uh, but it seems like these stories are actually homegrown to rural England instead. So the, the origins seem to be ambiguous, but it seems like it is actually an English story rather than necessarily being Celtic. It does. It, it, it did remind me of, um, you remember we did an episode uh, with Colin Dickey about his book, Ghostland? Yes. And we talked in there about how that a lot of ghost stories are tied into sort of cultural shame. So like these these concepts around the way we've treated um, minorities and the way we've treated sex mm-hmm. workers. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And that seems to be very much in, in, in spirit here. Uh, pun sort of intended uh, with, with with these uh, these skull stories. I mean, they, they they're none of these are the story of a really wealthy person whose skull is in the house. These are always the mm-hmm. uh, there's always an economic disparity between the or it seems to me your your research may I don't know how you feel about that, but the it seems to me that most of the stories were about wealthy manor houses where the skulls belong to mm-hmm. various forms of cultural victims. Yeah, well, usually a lot of the stories take place in uh, manor houses and stately homes across England or, or farms, um, those kinds of places. And, and I think you're right in saying that there is usually some kind of elements of uh, a, tra- a tragedy uh, or an element of violence. So perhaps the the person whose skull is in the home, uh, they had been the victims of um, a victim of a murder or an execution or something like that. Um, so there, there's usually some tragic tale that's associated with the, the skull. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like for the most part there, there could be some kind of could be some kind of economic disparity there. I mean, in general terms, we're talking about people keeping a skull, a real human skull, in their home. Mm-hmm. For lots of different reasons. It seems like uh, often the skull is in the home serving as a kind of good luck charm, that it has protective abilities for the home, that it's a, a guardian of the home too that it can even warn of impending bad luck. Uh, it can be an omen that someone is going to die in the house uh, or, or various stories that are associated with it, but it can also be, it can also cause bad luck. So that's where the term screaming skull comes from is the, the basic, uh, the, well, the, the heart of the legend, which is that uh, the skull, there's some kind of story attached to the house where the skull must remain in the house and it cannot be removed from its resting place and otherwise, if it is removed, that it causes some kind of poltergeist activity or paranormal activity uh, and that it will 
plague the house until the skull is returned. So if someone tries to remove the skull from the house or to bury it with the body, something like that, that it's going to to groan or scream or cry uh, or cause all kinds of bad luck even in the village that it that it's within. Yeah, I, I noticed some of the stories were talking about how that the skull provides good luck unless you do something to try to rebury it or repatriate it. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's bad luck and it screams, which honestly, having a, a skull that screams and throws stuff around your house it, it is kind of bad luck. So maybe the good. <laughs> I didn't see many, many examples of what wonderful good luck. It's more like if you don't follow the instructions, the penalties are really harsh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, too, that uh, the the owners of the skull become attached to the skull as well and that they uh, like to, to keep it on display and that uh, they, they feel it's somehow protecting the house. That's often yeah. an important part of the stories. Uh, and also, too, that the, the skulls are indestructible in some way that they – can be there, there can be uh, maybe a new owner who moves into the house and they try to get rid of the skull somehow by by uh, drowning it, throwing it into a moat. There was one story where a skull was thrown into a moat and all of this bad luck started coming on this house. And so they drained the moat and found the skull and returned it back to the house and all of the bad luck ceased. And there are other cases of uh, the skulls being burnt or even destroyed where the, the jaws broken off and the teeth are broken off, and then uh, magically the skull reappears. So, so the, in some cases the, the skull has to be brought back into the house, and in other cases it actually finds its way back like a kind of homing pigeon. So I feel like if you've tried the moat and it didn't work, the chances you would try it again are remote? Remote. I thought it was like <laughs> I, I knew this episode was going to be replete with puns for you. <laughs> yeah, it probably will be. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that there seem to be these common themes or common threads to all of these stories that uh, you have a skull which sits in a part of a house, and so it might be sitting on a mantelpiece or it might sit on a windowsill, so some kind of prominent area of the house. In many stories, too, it might be built into a wall niche or it might even be hidden in the house. Yeah. Uh, certainly some of the, the cases where the stately homes are open to the public. Uh, and then again, there's this feature of the story of the skull being attached to some kind of history of violence, uh, murder or execution or something like that. And often the stories really seem to take place outside of living memory. So a lot of them seem to date back to maybe the 17th century, 18th century. Yeah. I, I, I had trouble I, I did some literature searches, and I had trouble finding uh, accounts of these in books, at least, before mm-hmm. the late 1800s. So it seemed like there's – so that doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that in my efforts, I wasn't able to find them. But a lot of the legends specifically say that the legend goes back to the 1600s or the 1700s. And um, – I just, but apparently, sometime between 1870 and 1900, this idea blew up. I mean, like it was like really popular in the newspapers and books uh, of, yeah. of England. So, uh, yeah, I think it was really popular in uh, stories in Victorian times where they just had a, a love of all things gothic. But I, I found an earlier reference that uh, I mentioned in our notes. It goes back to 1791. It was a fellow called John Collinson who wrote a history of antiquities of Somerset 
And uh, he wrote about one particular story, which we're going to go into a little bit more about the skull of a fellow called Theophilus Broom. (laughs) Clearly not a muggle, if you know what I'm saying. I think you do. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's also a PhD thesis, so a dissertation in in American English, um, going back to 1999 by a, a guy named David Clark. And he has written about this phenomenon as well. And uh, so he's got a lot of this covered too. Um, I, I didn't get access to his thesis, but it seems like he's uncovered about 32 legends across England. Wow. That's that's a lot of skull legends. <laughs> it is. It's incredible. And, and you noticed that um, uh, most of them were associated with fancy houses, right? Yes, yeah, with stately homes. Yes, typically that that seems to be one of those hallmarks of the stories. Why do you think, Blake, all of these manor houses have these skulls? I've given it some thought, Karen, and I think they were uh-huh. trying to keep up with the Boneses. <laughs> <laughs> See, <laughs> that's a good one. It is okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but but it, it it is it does it doesn't seem to be the province of the impoverished to have a screaming skull in one's home. So, uh, let, can we talk a little bit about some of these mo- most famous cases? I, I guess the top of your list here is probably the most famous, and that is it pronounced I, Bettiscombe? I think it's Bettiscombe. Yeah, uh, I think we might we, yeah we might mispronounce some of these terms for which we apologize to. Well, if 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 they wanted them to be pronounced properly, they should have written them in American English. So. American, yeah. <laughs> American. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that that was one that you. It seems like you're very familiar with that case, or, or are you not? <laughs> my, my, this is the one I've heard the most of, and mm-hmm. this is the one where, unless I'm really messing this up, and it is. Really easy to get these confused because you know what? They're all about a skull in a fancy house. It's it's a little mm-hmm. easy to get them mixed about. Well, but I, I, I believe variations this is the, on a theme. Yeah, yeah. So a betascom is the one where it's allegedly the skull of a slave, if I believe. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And, and, and his name now. Um we might need to look that up then. It's it's, I, it's a strange one because um, I, I I noticed that like you know like a lot of legends, there's a Wikipedia page about it, and mm-hmm. we've run into this before where the Wikipedia page has an entry saying that uh, the legend is not entirely accurate because it it was supposed to be of a slave who didn't want to be buried in England. He wanted to be returned to his homeland back in some colony. That was the- Caribbean or yeah. something, I think. And allegedly in the 1960s, someone came and examined the skull and said, no, 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 this is not an African slave. This is some ancient Brit. Um, and yeah. but the I've reference different sources. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I didn't I don't trust Wikipedia when it when the reference is to a book that's out of print. Because sometimes mm-hmm. I go and buy those books just to verify the sources, and it turns out that that's not even in the book, or that's not a good, yes. or, or not a good source at all. And uh, so I, I didn't mm-hmm. really know how much. Uh, uh, it's good to check. Uh, I think Google Books often you can do you can do a keyword search and just ensure that it's actually in the book, even yeah. if you can't access the page. Absolutely, right. And in this particular case, the book was not available digitally. Like, it, the scan didn't have that detail. Uh, I did see that the book was 
first of all, it looked like one I would like to own. It was a really cool looking book, but um, it was like Legends of Dorset, uh, but it had a longer title than that. But I, I just, I was suspicious because even that, it was referencing like a 1960s uh, anthropologist walking through and saying, no, 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 that's not quite right. Um, right. But I, I, you know, I don't know if any, I didn't see any evidence that any DNA analysis had been done or anything like that. So I, I don't know. I mean, well, so I've looked up the story so we can cut out bits as, as we need to. So uh, I, I can't find the name of the enslaved person uh, in this particular source. That, that person isn't list isn't isn't named, uh, but they say that it's an African, uh, a, an enslaved person of African descent. But I've also read in other sources that it's a person of Caribbean descent, uh, Caribbean Caribbean, and uh, but apparently the person who uh, owned that uh, enslaved person was Azaria Pinney. So he'd traveled from England to the West Indies in the 17th century. And um, so he had brought this person back to his mansion and um, as an enslaved person. How dreadful. And that uh, this, this person had died on the estate and then basically had wanted to be returned to his homeland. And so on his deathbed, he'd requested that, he uh, be returned, and instead he was, yeah. <laughs> that's what they're saying. Even within this document, they're saying a, a person of African descent who wanted to be returned to the Caribbean. It's uh, it's confusing. That was the name of the the family anyway. So it was the the Pinney family. Azaria Pinney was the name of the the fellow. We have a lot of links that I will put in the show notes. This is going to be. If you're oh, interested in this so topic, there's going to be a lot of stuff to look into if you want to dig deep. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to start from scratch. Just hit the show notes. That's why we put them together. Uh, yeah, and so there are lots of other stories, and we've got a, we've made a list of a collection of them. And you were talking about Colin Dickey earlier and his book. And uh, interestingly enough, one of the stories is of a skull who's fondly named known as Dickey of uh, Tunstead Farm in Tunstead Milton in Derbyshire. And uh, so there are lots of stories. Again, you've just got these conflicting folkloric tales about um, the who was the, you know, who who's the, the possible owner of this or the, the possible um, person uh, owner of the skull. I don't know how. Well, to I even... don't know. Yeah. The, the, who, <laughs> who, who once inhabited the skull is different from who owns the house that currently holds the skull <laughs> yeah, the owner of the skull and, and it's, it gets confusing all of these stories have uh, just conflicting tales as well but with the the, stu- the uh, story of dickie's skull uh so one common version is that the owner was a fellow named ned dickinson and that he'd returned from war and this was in the 16th century so he'd come back home and he wanted to reclaim his farm but he found out that it had been taken over by uh, his murderous cousins. And so they didn't want him to come back. They didn't expect that he was going to come back. So they chopped off his head and they buried him in the garden only to find that he had returned one night and uh, that he insisted on re- remaining in the house. And so then there's a conflicting version that Dickie is actually a woman. So perhaps her surname, last name was Dickinson. And as this story goes, she was killed by her sister after they fell out over a man. So they were both in love with the same man. And um, so, you know, whichever tale is recounted, uh, it seems to involve someone who met some kind of 
unfair and untimely demise and tried to remove Dickie from his or her resting place uh, on a, a windowsill uh, in the farm. So there are, are actually photographs of this skull in this particular place in, in this farm. So you can go online and you can look up pictures uh, of the skull So or postcards of the skull. So it seems like it did actually exist and has been on display at some point. And I think that that's an interesting point too, that very few of these places that have screaming skulls are actually open to the public. So the only one that I'm familiar with is a place called Burton Agnes Hall, which we're going to be talking about in a minute. Um, but the skull's not actually on display there. But it seems like with most places, uh, they're not open to the public. Uh, in the case of the Higher Farm, which I mentioned earlier, there you can actually go and view the skull, but it's by appointment only, and I think that's rather amusing. You yeah. can go and see. You yeah. can go and visit the skull by appointment. Um, so that is still around. But it seems like many of the skulls have been lost or stolen or obviously removed from their homes but haven't screamed. Well, I mean, if, if you didn't have appointments, everybody would be trying to get to be head of the line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there really isn't much evidence for a lot of these skulls. So it's just interesting in the cases where there is photographic evidence at least. Yeah, uh, right. No, that's that's right. The what's interesting is the st there's a story and there's a skull. But I mm -hmm. guarantee you when you go to these places to see these skulls, they won't let you walk out of the house with them to verify that there's a scream involved. No, they're not going to test that theory even right, though it right. would be fun. No, I think it's this is more of a a folklore kind of thing, although mm -hmm. Although clearly many of these places literally really do have a skull. So that's that's quite peculiar and interesting because mm -hmm. if I wanted to have a screaming skull, there's all kinds of laws prohibiting it. Are there? Well, yeah, you're not allowed to just go dig up a grave and steal the skulls. Or, or so I've been told. Um, mm. Otherwise, my house decorations would be quite different. Yeah. <laughs> And again, in a lot of these cases, you were talking about the case of the Bettiscombe Manor uh, and that the, the skull was, I think, carbon dated and um, shown to be ancient of a, an ancient English person. And I think the skull dates back. I've read various sources saying maybe 2,000 years up to 5,000 years. So certainly not. The things that I read, though, were from the 1960s. And so I, I, I don't know if any modern work has been done on if they have i haven't seen this if I, i'd love to like mm -hmm. add that to the show notes if that's available but um all i've seen is secondhand accounts so i don't really know yeah you're right a lot of these accounts are, are rather old it doesn't seem to be something that anyone's worked on in the past 10 to 20 years or sec second head accounts I, the point is <laughs> it's not current <laughs> uh, so another famous case is the skull of saint ambrose barlow in Wardley Hall in Manchester. So apparently he uh, died back in 1641. So it seems to be a Catholic relic. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. But there are several stories, again, several legends associated with this the skull of Wardley Hall. Uh, so the most famous one, I think, is that the skull belongs to St. Ambrose Barlow uh, and that he is a Catholic martyr. Uh, so in the, the times when uh, England had become Protestant, he was still a practicing Catholic and he was allowing mass to occur in his chapel. And so he was caught by the authorities and was arrested and tried and sentenced to death, and he uh, underwent a horrible death of hanging, drawing, and quartering, which was all the rage at the time. Oh, yeah. And his, yeah, just very, very nasty, to say the least, and his head was impaled publicly, but it's believed that someone stole his head and secretly took it to Wardley Hall, where it is reputedly still there to this day, and I think it's built into the wall in a kind of wall niche with a glass uh, screen in front of it. He is a famous saint. He was canonized and uh, he has schools named after him and he's the, the patron saint of a, a number of various things. Um, so he, is, he did exist at some point, but I don't know if that's his skull. <laughs> we have listeners all over the world, but the majority mm-hmm. of them are still in America. And it's, it's probably important to mention the struggle between Catholics and Protestants in the history of England uh, is frequently bloody and brutal in a way that like, we wouldn't understand here in America. And it's still going today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with the uh, things that go on in Ireland and yeah, so kind of dating back to Henry VIII and um, his break away from the, the Roman Catholic Church and uh, instilling Protestantism into England, becoming the Church of England. And, oh, yeah. Um, so, and it, it's uh, just it, when, when you have a government sanctioned religion, it's uh, what you see in the history is that when e- either side took, took predominance uh, mm-hmm. between Catholics and Protestants, uh, the other side suffered literally with their lives. You know, so oh, it's 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 quite brutal. Hundreds of years. Uh, yep. I mean, his mm-hmm. his daughter Bloody Mary uh, reinstalled Catholicism back into England and um, was very famous for executing a lot of people. And yeah, it was certainly back and forth like that. Yeah, and yeah. Really, to this day, is a, a point of contention. Oh yeah, 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 and people are still mad. Britain, I mean, yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I I just uh, I I just wanted to mention that because I, I think. Uh, it's possible that American history and American education doesn't really tell people that much about uh, British history um, beyond the fact that they have kings and we don't, you know, so. Uh, but the, the moat story that I was talking about earlier, 
uh, regarding the skull that was associated with the, the skull of Wardley Hall as well with St. Ambrose Barlow. But there is another tale that is associated with that skull too. And uh, I think it's a, a story of a fellow who was drunk and out uh, just walking with his friends one night and he uh, was full of alcohol. He just decided to attack someone and uh, he thrust his sword into them and uh, then I think that person beheaded him and threw his head off a bridge into the water. And he, he made the mistake of attacking Connor McLeod. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Uh, so he is anyway. According to this story, his head was returned to his sister at Wardley Hall, which must have been a bit of a shock to wow. her. Wow! And that she displayed the head. And that uh, for that reason, he, he wanted to be or had. I mean, that is a key feature, I think, of a lot of these stories, too, that uh, the person who was executed um, or whatever happened to them, that they had some kind of final wish that they wanted to return to their childhood home or their family home and to, to stay there and to be able to watch future generations and what they be, do in the, the house. To be the head of the house. Yep. Ahead of the house, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Protector of the house, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's a very famous story as well. Um, and we don't have to go through all of these stories, but I think some of them are, in, are interesting anyway. Well, I, I uh, noticed that you've got some of these that are involved two skulls, and I noticed that as well in my research, that, that mm-hmm. there were some houses that had two instead of one. Is is that a case of one-upmanship or, or is there like something else going on? It's like, oh, that, oh, you've got one skull. How quaint. What? Yeah. <laughs> it might might be, but I think it's usually a case where there's a, a brother and sister who were killed for one reason or another. Um, so you've usually got the stories where there are relatives involved somehow. Um, or it could potentially be uh, – similar to the story that you were talking about where there is a, uh, a person who's still living uh, and then they, they've killed someone, they've murdered someone, and then when they die it's part of their penance somehow um, to, to be stuck with this other skull. So they're in, tied together for all eternity. Bummer. By having it stay in the same house. <laughs> <laughs> I... I, I found it, I, I found it real. The whole thing is very interesting because, right in the Crawford story, at the end of the this fictional tale, there's this little sort of note that the story is based on real events, like it's inspired by real events. Um, right. But I I thought um, I thought it interesting that there's this this popularity of this thing in England, but I didn't see it in Canada. I didn't see it in America. I didn't really see it anywhere except in England. It's like super specifically tied to England. I don't know. It is. It is. And that's the thing that it doesn't even appear to be Celtic in origin. It doesn't seem to appear in Scottish law or uh, Irish law. It seems like it is focused on rural England specifically. And that's just really interesting. I mean, from the SPR actually did investigations, and, and um, I, I noticed that in some of my research that in the 1930s they were actually investigating one of these cases and attested to its reality. Now, this seems like an eminently testable claim, if serious. Like if people were seriously mm-hmm. attesting to this being real, 
it seems mm-hmm. like the easiest thing in the world to test. You pull the skull out of its environment and wait for the screams, you know. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, so at some level, people have to know this bloody well isn't true. <laughs> like, but but I think there's also a good reason from a folkloric perspective to not take the skulls out of the houses. Oh, right, right, right. The, the, the penalty. Ooh, yeah, it's more than just the noise, the bad luck and all, right? Yeah, it's going to create havoc and, and yeah. just cause mis- misfortune. Uh, but at the same time, that the skull could be damaged in some way or it could just come back because it's indestructible. <laughs> Well, there's that too. <laughs> but I think that that's an important point uh, in, in talking about uh, you know, evidence or, or trying to test these theories. Uh, so there's one, another famous case that I was going to raise as well, which is the story of uh, Anne Griffith, who's also known as Catherine Anne Griffith. And uh, as I, I mentioned this place earlier, Burton Agnes Hall in, in Yorkshire. And so her death is um, attributed to about 1620. So she's known as Ode or old Nance as well. Um, so this is one of those few places where you can actually visit the premises, but you can't see the skull because it's buried somewhere on the premises. They they don't specify where. So again, who knows if there really is anything there at all? But it's the story of a, a woman named Anne Griffith, and she died uh, on the premises in, back in 1620, and she's said to haunt the building still as well. And so as the story goes, she was the youngest of three sisters. And it said that her portrait hangs in the building as well. Uh, and so as the story goes, she was watching the building of this this new house and was very, very obsessed with this building and uh, just had deep connections to the, the building. And uh, when it was almost finished, she had gone shopping one afternoon and she was attacked and robbed by a, a band of ruffians. There are different stories sometimes. Some stories say that it was a group of highwaymen. So different stories. Um, but anyway, she was brought home, but she was hurt so badly that she died a few days afterwards. But in her a delirious state as she was dying, she her final wish to her sisters was that she be uh, part of the house, that her head be returned to the house so she didn't want to to be buried off site or she wanted her head to remain on the site anyway so she made them make that promise that they would bury her head in the house and um so they the sisters agreed but when she actually died they buried her in the churchyard instead and they just thought oh she's delirious you know she didn't really mean that she didn't want to have her head severed and preserved in the house and so uh, very quickly, her ghost started appearing. Her ghost was very, very upset about what they'd done and that they hadn't fulfilled her final wish and her, her dying words. And so she started causing poltergeist activity in the house and uh, just kept reappearing to her sisters to the point where they went and consulted with the local vicar and agreed that they should actually respect her final wishes. So they went and uh, uh, disinterred her body. But when they opened up the grave, they found that her head had been severed from her body and was actually clean and ready to be taken back and put into the house. Uh, That's handy. Yeah, very, very handy. And and you get a lot of that kind of magical element to 
um, where someone uh, in other stories where someone attempts to bury the skull and then they find that the skull has found its way out of the grave and back into the house. So that's a, a common story. Uh, but anyway, in this particular story of Anne Griffith, uh, she was at peace now that her head was back in the house and she was able to be in the house that she'd, she'd always loved and that she just remains as a kind of guardian of the home. But the interesting thing to me is that there doesn't seem to be any evidence that she existed. And I think that that would have to be the case with many of these other stories too, where, if, for example, the Dickie's skull, we're not sure if it's a man or if it's a woman. Um, so in other cases, we just can't even trace it back to the owner of the skull being the person who had once had that as part of their fleshly body. Um, so it just seems to me like, I mean, it just seems to be a hallmark of, of folklore rather than history that a lot of these people didn't exist. But who knows where the skulls came from? I think you'd have to individually go and research each of these cases to be able to trace them. It's not like you can solve the case of the screaming skulls. You'd have to go back and, and look at each individual case. Right. There's very little incentive on the part of the people who actually own the homes that house the skulls mm -hmm. to demystify these through science. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not like many of these places are open to the public, so they're not earning a, a living from this in any way. But I think that there's just a lot of folklore associated with it. And I think there's some degree of people just wanting to be play it safe rather than be sorry. And if these things could be true, then it's just it's better to keep these skulls or these artifacts in the house just in case. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a funny kind of story because you're right. I don't need to show it to you and I can't put it back in the ground because of the terrible penalties. But mm -hmm. I assure you that there's a screaming skull in my house. <laughs> and if you come and look at it, of course it won't scream because mm -hmm. it's in the house. That's where it wants to be. But, yeah, oh, yeah. I assure you, if it left, oh, it would be terrible, terrible. And once again, so much of this is oral history, so it's not like it can be traced. Uh, but there, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to attest to these things having happened, screams and cries and bad luck having happened but hundreds of years ago. So, again, it's outside of living memory. Right, but it's no surprise that it's oral history because it's all about heads. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> bingo. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> uh, terribly good. Well, I, I so we've got some cool links in the show notes uh <laughs> or to to all these cases. And yeah. uh that includes I found some really cool um 19th century and 20th century newspaper articles uh, courtesy of newspapers.com uh mm -hmm. which by the way uh, we subscribe to thanks to the uh, beneficence of our patrons uh, on patreon.com forward slash monster talk. So uh, we really appreciate your support because that allows us to do this kind of research, which is wonderful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now you've written a short story based on this screaming skull legend. Yeah. I, I think I went and did some research and it's, so it's kind of a composite of, uh, these stories. So it, it, again, it is fiction. It's not based on any one particular story, but includes a, a number of different elements of the folklore of screaming skulls. I'm, I don't know if I would call myself a connoisseur, but I, I read a lot of short stories um, and I'm, I'm enjoying your work 
around this Thank topic. You. So I, I'm curious, are you planning to ever collect these all into a volume or what, what's your what's your plans here? Or, or, I know right now yes. you can buy them individually. Yes, yeah, so I've got them available individually, but I'd like to put them together into some kind of anthology when I get a, a suitable number of them. Uh, but I'm just having fun writing about these tales and legends that I've grown up with and always been fascinated by and uh, so it was just kind of timely that you and I were both thinking about screaming skulls. It, it was Shows peculiar, how wasn't it? We are. <laughs> <laughs> this mental connection yeah, about well, screaming skulls. We've hit it on the head, right? So, yeah. That's yeah. Good. <laughs> the story is uh, available just for Kindle only at this point until I can put them together in an anthology. Uh, but it's called The Legend of the Screaming Skull, a short story. And uh, so it is just a work of fiction possibly like the rest of it too but there is a lot of other fiction uh, a lot of fiction out there about screaming skulls there are books and movies and even poems and songs yeah isn't there a, there's a movie that you've seen i have well, there is seen. i've it, seen it, bits I, of it i <laughs> yeah so 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 there's a movie called the screaming skull it's yeah i I am a charitable person when it comes to movie reviews because I, at some level, I, I I keep thinking, well, these people worked hard on this. I want to be nice, right? So, bless their hearts, it's not a good movie. <laughs> but but Mystery Science Theater three thousand, which is just a wonderful show and uh, still sort of exists in the form of um, cinematic. Is it cinema Titanic or cinematic Titanic? And um, and the uh, riff tracks, uh, so, mm -hmm. the, so the people who did these still are out there. But but MST3K covered the Screaming Skull movie, and it, there's a little they did. thing. I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to see that. If you have to watch it, that's the, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you have to watch it, that's the way to do it. But, but to mm -hmm. give you some adv advice, to give you some guidance, I'm going to read from Bill Corbett. Now, Bill is one of the cast members of the Mystery Science crew. Okay. But he says, and I, I just, I love this. He says, I dearly love my job and my colleagues here, but permit me to whine a bit as I am very skilled and practiced at it. To wit, sometimes I wonder if we here at Best Brains aren't the butt of our own joke. While producing a show about a man and his robots who are tortured by watching bad movies, we have become the real-life victims of our own smarty-pants premise. And why do I say this? The answer is... The Screaming Skull. Making someone watch this even once is specifically outlawed by the Geneva Convention. But many, many times, as is our practice, that is the custom-fitted hell that we've brought upon ourselves worthy of a wry introduction by Rod Serling. I found this movie to be the deepest of hurting, like watching bacteria grow in extra slow motion. This situation, I would contend, is true irony classic Greek in nature, unlike the Alanis Morissette version, which applies the word to slight inconvenience and minor gross-outs. Considering <laughs> the oeuvre of Mystery Science Theater, I think that says volumes. And having seen it, I concur. Mm -hmm. it is, like, I, I get the premise. Their premise is, in the movie, it's about it's... A, a man who has married a woman. His previous wife died under mysterious circumstances, and within minutes... You realize that he's a baddie. 
And what he does is he used the sort of Screaming Skull premise to have a skull appear and disappear. He's basically gaslighting her as a victim. It's not good. It's not good. But it's not true to the to the theme of Screaming Skull in general. Yeah, it's true neither to the original legends nor the, the, the short story. And I've seen snippets on YouTube. It really is kind awful. of awful. Um, it, or awful. It's not good. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, th- I think there's just a lot of uh, existing fiction about Screaming Skulls anyway, and that's even the name of a punk rock band, which I think is interesting. That's and fantastic. Novels and yeah, so there's there's a lot of fun stuff out there about Screaming Skulls, and there is. I think it's just such a fascinating topic and, and such a, a really inspiring kind of idea. I mean, it's 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 interesting to me because it, it sort of ties into a lot of what we do here. It's it's a monster story in a sense. It's mm-hmm. it's folklore in a sense. It's tied into pop culture. It's uh, a story that seemed to have. I mean, in a, if you look at it, it it kind of had a viral quality to it, and it certainly had a pop. It still culture, does. Yeah, it still does. It's 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 it's, fa- it's fascinating. I I'll really try if I can to make that our Christmas story for twenty twenty. Um, Assuming we survive 2020, because good lord, it seems like this year is trying to kill me. Uh, <laughs> then you can become a screaming skull. That's right. Well, yes, I can. Yes, your wife would love that. Yeah. That's exactly what she needs. <laughs> this, this was also the subject quite recently of a Reddit posting uh, where a husband and wife were talking about what they wanted to do when they died, and the husband said that he wanted to be placed on the mantelpiece. Uh, he, he wanted his skull to be preserved and cleaned and placed on the mantelpiece and he wanted the rest of his body to be cremated and then turned into blue crystals you know how there are some companies oh yeah 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 turn your remains into crystals so he wanted to be turned into these bright blue crystals and to be placed into the eye sockets of the skull and to stare out and watch over his family for all eternity it's his name jim <laughs> names were not provided but anyway this was a whole a whole reddit thread uh that that was quite recent and really led to a lot of discourse and i was thought it, that was really this, was this on their reddit thread uh am i the ass skull <laughs> <laughs> terrible, terrible. Uh, but i think that uh even for those who aren't aware of the history of the screaming skulls I think that uh, a lot of people are just aware of some of the folklore that's connected to it. It just seems to be out there in the ether. It does, and on the wire, <laughs> and in the Ethernet. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Okay, let, I think we can wind up here, um, unless you have some yeah, more things you want to say. Yeah, this yeah is I a- don't think there's anything else I really wanted to, to cover. Um, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of kind of the basic stories or the most famous stories and the most the, the basic folklore as well um just kind of looking through things yeah Yeah, i think we really covered it for the most part if any new developments come out obviously uh you can listen to monster talk and stay ahead on the topic (laughs) 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 i think think it's a fun story anyway it is it's fantastic and i i I think the the notes on this are going to be ginormous i i hope people will check them out Um, yeah let me know if you need me to contribute any but uh, i mean I, I came across so many different links and i put some of them in there as well 
I'm hopefully um, I'm, my biggest a lot of repetition. Ho I'm hoping I can find there's so many cool photos out there. I, I hope I can find some that are like copyright safe to share. And, um, I, and I, yeah, I think with that, uh, the Dickie skull that seems to be a postcard or something. So I think you'd be able to use that. Yes. One. Yeah. I found a bunch of them. So I'm hoping a lot of them, if they're going to be in the 1920s, fortunately, because of this big blow up in the uh, late 19th century, uh, this should be really easy to find some cool, cool imagery. You know, my wife and I play team trivia, or we used to play it a lot. Anyway, we still occasionally do, but we used to play it a lot. I used to love that too. Yeah, we we used to do that. I used to do that back in Australia. We had a a, a waitress come over. When this reminds me of this, we had a waitress come over, and she, uh, I bless her heart, uh, uh, she was trying to help us. We were universally first or second place. We really were kicking ass. Uh, this was when my kids were first born. So I still had some brain uh -huh. cells left, but oh, tell me about it. <laughs> long time ago, <laughs> but she came over and said, um, this, uh, this answer is in the 19th century and that's the 1800s. And that's all I can tell you, but I think that should help. <laughs> it's like, so she, she learned you something. <laughs> yeah. She learned us real good. It's like so we still, every now and then we'll still talk to my, my friends and I will be like, this is the 19th century. That's the 1800s. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the first thing that you've learned in, when you study any kind of history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. Is, it is a confusing thing. It really is a confusing thing. So it is. maybe we're being too highfalutin to think that <laughs> that's not complicated. We thanked complex. her. We tipped her appropriately. And we treasure yeah. that story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one to be passed down, isn't it? Talk about oral tradition. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love this story. And it's, it's one of these um, you know, ones that goes back to my childhood and I just think it's, it's really fun and has that creep factor to it as well. And the fact that it is, I mean, this is, it's probably one extra point that we should make for the show anyway. And, and that is that a lot of people do believe in these legends. They really do. And yes. I think you'd have lots of different reasons for why someone would display a skull or attach, uh, stories to a, a house. But I think that there are still a lot of people who really do think that there's something to it and yeah. um, still well, still is this. And uh, several of these actually have a skull sitting there. So, I mean, if you, you know, wh whether or not it's magical or, or ghostly or not, there is a skull in their house, which is. Places still have skulls on display. Yeah. But there is a wealth, as you're finding, a wealth of information, photographs and postcards um, of of skulls that were on display until recently and people have stolen them or I don't know, maybe taken them with them if they've moved on. But uh, yeah, there's just a real wealth of, of anecdotal evidence anyway. All right. Well, I don't have a great joke to wind this up with, but uh, this was really interesting. We'll put a link to your story in the show notes and we'll put a link to lots and lots and lots of cool legends and newspaper stories and supplementary material in the show notes. Yeah. Very Fantastic. Cool. All right. I'm going to stop recording. Thank you for indulging me with this. Hey, no problem. I look forward to doing the Lord Dufferin story as well, which, uh, oh my God, do you realize uh, the Dufferin, this is kind of a teaser if we leave this in, the Dufferin story we've actually been looking into since, well, obviously a long time before that, but since the very first year we started doing Monster Talk. So I, I, I found... And independently well before that, too. Oh, well before that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I've been fascinated by that tale since we were kids. And then once you start developing tools for how to research these stories and investigate them, then 
it makes me look at things from a different perspective. That'll be a really fun episode. I look forward to doing that too. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You've been listening to a discussion with Karen and myself discussing the Screaming Skulls. Lots of links in the show notes, including a link to Karen's short story, which was inspired by this legend. I'm still intrigued by what inspired these multiple stories and skulls, and maybe that's a mystery lost to time. But then again, maybe some of our listeners will be inspired to dig into this or already know more about it than we did. So let us know. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening to our show. been a monster house presentation the screaming skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror but we caught that its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect it may kill you if you watch it in front of a moving bus therefore its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing the Screaming Skull. Offer void in Utah, Florida, and Arizona. Taxes and acquisition fee not included. Must take delivery of dealer stock. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.